0: Hello and welcome to the fourth panel of this Institute for Government and the Bennett Institute for Public Policy Conference on the Future of the UK Constitution. If you've been here all day, you'll know exactly where you are. In this panel, we're going to be discussing when and how the public should be involved in constitutional decision making. I'm Rebecca McKee. I'm a senior researcher here at the Institute for Government, and I'm very pleased to be chairing this event. There is now an expectation that the public should be consulted in some areas of constitutional change. However, the traditional routes for gaining public legitimacy for this change, such as referendums or elections, can result in binary choices or unclear mandates. But beyond elections and referendums, the influence of the public on decision-making is fleeting, limited, and unequal with few opportunities for people to participate directly in decision-making. Deliberative processes such as citizens' assemblies, which provide an informed and considered view from a representative group of citizens, can offer something unique to politicians. But while there are lots of examples that we can draw on from around the world and some in the UK, there is no precise blueprint for how to do this and how to build this into our processes of constitutional change. And getting these processes right is a challenge. So when and how should the public be involved in constitutional decision-making? Is there a role for deliberative democracy? And how might this work? To get us into this topic, we're joined this afternoon by Sarah Allen, who is the Director of Capacity Building and Standards That Involve and an internationally recognized specialist in public engagement and decision-making. Joanna Anderson is the former mayor of Liverpool from 2021 to 23 and a member of our advisory board. Thank you. Uh, She also has nearly three decades of experience as an equality, diversity and inclusion practitioner. Doreen Grove is head of Open Government at Scottish Government and leads their work on openness, transparency and the use of innovative participative processes. And Professor Alison Young finally is the Sir David Williams Professor of Public Law at the University of Cambridge. She's written extensively on issues of constitutional law and constitutional theory. And her forthcoming book, Unchecked Power, evaluates the UK's emerging post-Brexit constitution. Before we get into the discussion, I have a couple of brief housekeeping notes, which again, you'll be familiar with if you've been here all day, but we will be live tweeting uh, this event from at IFGEvents with a hashtag IFGBennettinst. Please follow and tweet along. If you're joining online, please uh, do start sending in questions uh, using Slido, so it's the screen next to the uh, video. Um, If you see a question that you'd like, you can just upvote it, and then we know that it's popular um, and add your name and organisation. So, Joanne, um, as a former mayor of Liverpool with direct experience of local government decision-making, do you think that there is a problem? As in, do citizens have enough of a role in decision-making process?
1: There's opportunities for citizens to have a role. I'm not sure they're very interested and I'm not sure um, they serve us very well. So we have you know, uh, neighbourhood panels. We have discussion groups and scrutiny panels at council. Not a lot of public engagement. Uh, sometimes uh, people who've got a conspiracy theorist turn up and you know want to turn the agenda into something else. I've seen some terrible examples and really you know woefully inadequate engagements and consultations done at both local government and national government. Uh, and I've seen some brilliant examples as well of where it's done well. It does take time, effort, and resource, but actually. I've never really understood why you would design any policy without the people involved uh, who are using that policy. So trying to change sort of the tick bo- box and culture of, you know, this is a consultation, we've asked people a very uh, narrow set of questions of which we wanted a narrow set of answers. Actually, if you really get behind consultation and engagement to the point where you, before you do anything, you speak to the people it affects, it leads to much more rewarding solutions that way. <coughs>
0: Brilliant. Thank you. And Alison, um, does public engagement complement or conflict with our traditional forms of constitution making and how do we conceptualise the role of the public in this way along with some of our more traditional, like the courts and the legislature and the executive, how does that work?
2: I think we often see it as in some way contradicting it just because we have a very kind of narrow view of what we think lawmaking is or what we think constitutional change is. So there's a kind of very sort of traditional view of the constitution as just you vote every so often, so up to every five years, you read a manifesto, you've given a mandate, and that's it. That's the end of the role of the public in the constitution. And I think um, I don't see the constitution that way, and I think it's really good to see that there is more engagement. I think there's a really positive role that people can play, uh, not just through this element of, as we've seen through um, the growing use of referendums, but I think more broadly, I think public consultation can really complement the way in which our constitution works, particularly getting us to think about how we can have a much wider range of views. So there are often many groups that aren't represented in traditional parliamentary debates and parliamentary discussions. So having more consultations where you can get that wider range of views, I think really does help decision making. I think it can also help form consensus So often we have a parliamentary process which is seen as very adversarial. You have the government, you have the opposition, you have a big fight and off you go and see who's going to be in government next time around. That can make it very difficult to form a consensus, which means particularly if you're looking at constitutional change, it can be really hard to get the backing of a broader range of society behind any form of change, which means it might not be fully backed, might not be long term and you're constantly chopping and changing. So I think it can be really good at trying to listen to others, hear their stories, and hopefully find a consensus way through that can help inform debate. I think more importantly for me, there are two other functions that we don't tend to think about. Um, We very rarely talk about why we want democracy, why we want human rights, what form of democracy we want, why do we want devolution, why do we want local government. I think these aren't necessarily conversations we tend to have often. The more you have those, the more you begin to realise why they are or are not valuable. And so I think it really helps to reinforce the values that we can have in our constitutional system. And finally, give a sense of ownership. If you've been involved as part of the public, and you've had this discussion, then it no longer seems like, here are values someone's imposed on me. You feel like you've had a role in coming up with what those values are, and this element of ownership. And that also triggers into some of the other themes that we've been discussing. If we think there's a lack of accountability or a lack of integrity, well, if there's an ownership by the people and the electorate of these values, then it becomes more natural to think about holding people to account to these values. So I think all those are ways in which we could complement the way it works. How? I could be here forever, (laughs) but I think you have to think much more carefully. It comes at all stages. It can come at policy formation to go away and consult and discuss and think about how you're going to move a policy. It can come at policy policy refinement. I've got some ideas, is this going to work? Let's go away and talk to people involved on the ground. Will this actually bring in the change we want? And it can come at this high level of thinking about possible referendums or debates and deliberations prior to a referendum of forming these values. So there's many, many ways in which it can come and become part of political debate and deliberation.
0: Thank you, and Doreen, the Scottish Government has been doing some of this work and has now held two citizen assemblies, and you've been working on other plans for involving the public. Um, and so, how is the Scottish Government using public engagement in its work?
3: So we have done for a long time, uh, uh, and we're uh, in danger of all agreeing, which is really bad. Um, uh, I, I think, so, so two things. Uh, one is we've been a reforming government for the last 10 years um, uh, and more, and um, one element of that is around trust in government. Um, our governments will only be trusted if they behave in a trustworthy way. Um, uh, and in order to understand what people see as trustworthy uh, you 've got to ask them um, there 's no point in, in um, uh, formulating that without asking the question so so for for a long time we we 've had um, uh, a public service reform process that was put in place with a very participatory process by Campbell Christie um, uh, and if you don't have a copy of the Christie report under your pillow I recommend yeah. you get it. Um, uh, I, I think we from that the ideas uh, of people being involved uh, of partnerships uh, of collaborations that no single entity can do everything themselves um, so so we have a, had a community empowerment Act uh, that that provides some um, uh, uh, rights for uh, people to be involved in in policy making but you're right we have done two full citizen assemblies um, uh, and looking at the kinds uh, of methods uh, that will help us Um, find a route through really complicated and complex issues um, where the discussions are going to be taken away from the polarisation, taken away from um, uh, the the really toxic argument uh, and people are able to see evidence, people are uh, able to interrogate that uh, and hear it and often that's better sat outside of government, Um, so government needs to be close enough to understand its responsibility to do something with the outputs, Uh, but nonetheless, having that idea um, that a really carefully um, moderated and facilitated discussion uh, which looks at the evidence uh, and in the end comes up with recommendations um, you know, put your faith in people. Uh, people will not let you down if they have the evidence and the information and the process. But there isn't just one process. Constitution making is um, uh, something that will be dynamic. Uh, and will need a variety of ways of doing it uh, but being really careful uh, about the values and principles uh, of how you do it and how you get people involved really matter.
0: Great thank you and Sarah um, what are some of the key things you think that government and parliament should be aware of when they're using deliberative exercises like citizens assemblies so I'm talking about the benefits but also you know in case we are going to all be agreeing, or you're all going to be agreeing, what are also some of the risks as well?
4: Yeah, so I thought um, my initial reaction to that was that there are kind of three key uh, risks and benefits to highlight. Um, So the first isn't often discussed, but it's the risks of not doing this sort of public engagement so if we think for example now you've just had a panel around some aspects of devolution but if you think about the cornwall devolution deal so cornwall negotiated a devolution deal with central government um, and that would have taken you know a lot of resource a lot of investment to do it they took it back they ran a consultation on it and the consultation came back um, a majority rejecting um, the deal, but hidden within the consultation was a poll of the Cornish population, a representative sample of the population, and that showed that they backed the deal and that in fact only 16% of the population uh, opposed it. Now, off the back of that consultation and reading the responses and seeing the majority negative response to the consultation itself, Cornwall Council decided to not go ahead with the deal that it itself had negotiated with central government. So, all that time, all that resource um, kind of went nowhere. Now, if you think about what could have happened if that engagement had been done differently, um, because if you think about who responds to consultations where they got that negative result, most people who respond to the consultations from government, from parliament, if it's kind of open, anyone can reply. They're not representative of the population generally. They're older, they're white, they're male, they're more educated, not necessarily reflective of the population. So, if instead at that point Cornwall Council had run something like a citizens' assembly where they brought together a reflective group of the population to have a look at the deal, to say what they thought about it, to say if it should have gone ahead, they might have got quite a different result that, had allowed, that allowed the deal to progress and meant that that uh, resource didn't go to waste. So, that's the risk of not doing an example of the risk of not doing this sort of engagement. Um, in terms of the key benefit, it's almost the flip side of that. Um, so, one of the key benefits of doing this sort of engagement is that it gives politicians and officials confidence in what the public think. So it gives them confidence in what a reflective group of the population um, would like to see happen that allows people then to move forward with what they're thinking with confidence and also to incorporate those views, a bit like uh, someone else was on the panel, I think it was Joanne, was saying um, to incorporate those views into policy to make stronger policy that's also more likely to have public support. Uh, A really good example of that um, is the Jersey citizens assembly or the Jersey citizens jury rather on assisted dying so in Jersey they asked a reflective group of the population whether they thought assisted dying should be legal um, and if it should be legal under what conditions it should be legal and based on the recommendations of that jury the uh, government in Jersey has now voted um, in principle to legalize assisted dying because they're confident about what people think and under what conditions they'd accept a change Um, and then the last thing on key risks and then I'll hand back uh, to Rebecca but the last thing on key risk is that I think one of the interesting things about this is that the key risks that people worry about when they come to commission one of these things isn't actually I think what the key risk is and I think the key risk is more what Doreen was alluding to which is about how the results of these processes feed back into decision making so has the government you know the government or parliament that's commissioning this really thought through how it feeds back into its decision-making
0: structures. And I could give a couple of examples above that, but I suspect we should get on with the rest of the panel. We can come back to those, I'm yeah. sure, or the audience can as well if we don't manage to. But thank you very much, Sarah. Um so if involving the public in some way, um Alison is um is important for constitutional changes to provide the sort of legitimacy element to the change. But referendums are to date the most popular or the main way of getting the public's view on those issues that we've been using sort of since the 1970s, what is it that deliberative engagement offers over and above referendums?
2: Well, I think you have to, in in some ways, again, as we were saying earlier, um, deliberative engagement and referendums in some senses can go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So a referendum is another way of trying to get, in essence, a vote. So you're not necessarily always going to have the chance to engage, to talk about people, to think about what question you're going to give to them it's polarising because a referendum is going to have to be putting across the question of do you want X or do you want Y? So it's going to diverge into these two little distinct camps. There isn't necessarily going to be the chance to deliberate, to understand, to recognise what the differences are or what the consequences are in certain circumstances. So I think you can combine um, aspects of deliberation with elements of referendums. So either if you're using this as a kind of policy initiation so you could have more of a discussion, more of deliberation, more different groups before you then put the question of, do you want to move the policy in one direction or another direction with a referendum backing it? So I know in your report, you mentioned um, the example of Ireland and the discussions on the rights of the unborn child and the ins and outs of thinking about having citizens assemblies, then framing it and then having the referendum that then builds on it. So you've got informed discussion, deliberation that then leads to aspects of decision making from a referendum. So I think the two can go hand in hand, and it may well be that you then have other processes where the referendum comes at the end, rather than initiating it, where again there's been more deliberation, discussion, forming a policy, which can then be put to a yes, no vote with that informed element. So again, I think they can complement because they're doing slightly different things. One is decision making, one is more informing that decision making process.
0: Thank you. And if a key problem in the constitution is that we kind of highlighted in, in our report is that the short-term party political inter- interests is what often drives constitutional change. Um, Doreen, if, if this happens without widespread public support being sought, do we, what do we think about um, institutionalising or formalising these processes? So we've
3: actively been thinking about it in, in Scotland, we institute an expert working group of which uh, at least one or two members are in the audience, um, uh, to look at how we embed these processes through what we do. Um, uh, governments do all sorts of things, uh, they do policy development, uh, ideation, they do Uh, delivery uh, and constitution making is a very unusual bit of that but but um, uh, if you're going to get uh, policies that work for people I I mean I'm sure many of you haven't even thought about the fiscal cost of the failure of policies Um, most people don't uh, because you move on to the next thing but the fiscal cost of failure is enormous Um, uh, if you, you wouldn't create uh, a a new um, uh, apple iphone without testing it on the public that are going to use it uh, why would you develop a new bit uh, of a social security system or uh, any other uh, piece uh, uh, of the machinery of government without testing it on the people who are going to be most affected? But one of the really important things that this does is it brings in voices that you don't hear every day. Um, uh, if you, The routine way of governments consulting um, uh, is formal written consultations. And I don't know about anyone in the audience, But I don't spend my Wednesday evenings um, combing government websites to see what they're consulting on. Um, uh, they only attract people who have an interest, uh, who have skin in the game, who will, uh, they play a really important role and they have a statutory role in many places but that's just one part of our mechanisms. If we are going to get policies that are going to um, uh, protect our human rights, that are going to really shift poverty that are really going to um, uh, protect those who are least protected. Some of our most vulnerable people are not citizens. Being really thoughtful uh, about how you involve them, what the method is. Um, So so we did uh, an expert working group that have recommended uh, a route to embed these kinds of processes um, through our core work uh, in Scottish Government, um, and and we're doing uh, staff training, support, uh, the the kinds of things that you would expect. Um, But citizen assemblies will always be a relatively exceptional way uh, of looking at things. uh, If you're doing a whole national assembly, uh, that is a, a fairly big uh, piece of resource, it takes quite a long time, and it needs to be properly run and properly done. They will be hugely important, but actually almost everything the government does can benefit uh, from being much more deliberative from involving people more effectively working with and not doing to Um, that idea that you can co-design something Um, uh, we've done it with our um, the powers that came from smith on around um, social security we've done it in particular around things like the care review in scotland uh, where we also looked at the cost fiscal cost of failure there Uh, but but actively working with the people most affected uh, and working and co-designing the new system with them. Um, so, so it's not perfect, we've got a long way to go and um, uh, there's a, a level of resistance as, as you would imagine um, because uh, 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 it's Takes longer. Um, very often, you have to stop and and, and then think about it. Uh, and we've already heard several times today. Um, people really want to get things delivered quickly, and uh, in particular before the next election. Uh, all of those uh, issues, of course, still uh, still are there. But seeing this as really important ele- uh, evidence. Um, Which is just as valuable as the evidence that you pay expensive consultants to deliver for you. Uh, And valuing it in that sort of way is also important.
0: Thank you very much. I have a feeling some of our audience might indeed spend their wet Wednesdays doing exactly (laughs) that, given some of the. It's an unusual audience. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) it's an unusual audience, which we appreciate. Um, Joanne, given your past experience as a practitioner and then coming into local government as mayor with the sort of party political elements that are there, your thoughts on deliberative processes and. various ways of engaging the public being formalised as a part of decision making
1: yeah I think um, the Sarah's point about what people are scared of is not actually the thing they should be scared of when it comes to um running deliberative uh, engagement processes. Um, I'm involved in assistance and panel locally that uh, officers are really nervous about, being treated with suspicion. People want to know the outcome. Well, the whole point is to ask the people involved and what they want to talk about. And look, they might want to we're talking about criminal justice, but they might all turn up and talk about the green bin instead. And that's the risk that you pay. But actually, um, just being fearful and trying to control the process um, is it, just the wrong way to go about it. I think, you know, there's lots of opportunities at a local level but I think there's been a missed opportunity with e-petitions at a national level. I think that could have been a really effective way. But when I look at the statistics, and if I'm doing my maths right, um, I think it was less than 0.3% have been debated in Parliament and uh, 1.74% have had a government response and all the rest have been rejected. That's not, uh, you know, that process should be more formal. It should be, um, you know, it should be the other way around in terms of the statistics for sure. Because if you've got 50 million people signing and to say they want something discussed and debated then you've got a, a mandate my plea would really go out to you know officers and civil servants and whilst i haven't been a local government officer i have been a civil servant and as a politician when you have effective community engagement that uh, it gives you a mandate it does give you confidence and strength you know you're doing something good on behalf of people but i think too often when we're in uh, you know as civil servants or as officers we uh, can get really hung up on what's a very important Important issue and we come up with a solution that we believe to be fantastic and actually we have to remember that we're public servants and who we're doing it for and we're doing it on behalf of the public and if you don't get a mandate from them if you don't engage with them effectively you're just coming up with a clever idea that you think in between yourselves so really I think in terms of the the things that can be done and the opportunities that we we have in place it's about time energy resource it takes longer but the reward is greater because you have more buying and engagement and you also have mandates that what you do and what people want.
0: Great, thank you. And uh, the UK's uncodified constitution um, offers the opportunity to experiment with these new and innovative approaches um, to government and embrace these more sort of tangible connections between citizens and the state. So Sarah, I was wondering if you could elaborate on some of the options for engaging the public, um, if there are some particular questions that are better suited um, particularly around constitution making but other examples welcome
4: yeah so I think um, the first thing I would say which perhaps you wouldn't expect me to say is that I don't think it public needs to be engaged in every constitutional decision. So we see where there is a codified constitution in Ireland that any change to the constitution um, has to be has to go to a referendum so they have had referendums on things like um, whether you can become uh, president at an earlier age and um, how parliament runs inquiries and whether you can pay judges less and things like that. Now referendums are incredibly expensive and I don't think it's worth having a referendum on those sorts of issues so I think we need uh, a bit of a scale because obviously at the other end of that you have Bre- Brexit you have Scottish independence, you have things where you really do uh, need a a referendum. So I think the first thing is we need a scale of different types of engagement, starting perhaps, perhaps with none, I don't know Think you see what the panel uh, think about that, moving up to kind of maybe small scale processes like citizens juries involving 50 to 25 people who are reflective of the population, moving up to the bigger citizens assemblies and referendum and combinations um, of those, of those things. Um, But broadly, I think where I'd start with engagement on this is with something that's deliberative. So I don't know how familiar people are, but by deliberation, we mean uh, processes where people get to hear information about the issue. They're discussing balanced information about that issue. They get to weigh up what they've heard um, and each other's values and ideas about it um, over quite a period of time. And then they move on to write their recommendations and agree what they want to recommend. So I think that is a good starting point points for all of these topics Um, and then maybe on some of the bigger issues or in fact definitely on some of the bigger issues then you need to move on to a referendum okay
0: thank you um alison similar question to you um but looking at some of the constitutional like tensions of areas that we've had or things that we think are coming down the line what do you think are the things that best lend themselves to this kind of consultation or engagement Mm -hmm.
2: oh interesting question i think A lot of the tensions that are coming down the line are more to do with the kind of element of um, internal structures within governments. We've had lots of talk earlier on in the panels about Mm -hmm. how far are we actually in a system where we shouldn't be relying on self-restraint to the same extent anymore. Has that collapsed? What do we do? How do we get at mechanisms of accountability? And I think maybe I'm starting with Sarah and sometimes you don't necessarily need... I don't think you necessarily need a referendum on that because I think there's a clear... In some sense, a clear guidance in the sense of if you can see there's a perception of a lack of trust and a need to kind of build these values. And I think for that, that's more an element of engagement and discussion about what we think those values should be and educating on the constitution side, but I'm not necessarily sure that would move towards an element of referendum. We've had other discussions, we had the discussion in the earlier panel of what's the future of devolution, where's that going, I think that definitely is the kind of area that we definitely see as lending itself to aspects of a referendum in those particular issues, um, both in terms of is there a push in some areas for greater independence or not, um, how all those kinds of issues I think lend themselves to an aspect of referendum. so I guess I'm, another area where I'd like to see a referendum is human rights protections. So there's lots of discussions about, um, so we did have the British Bill of Rights and that is, um, as we understand at the moment, not on the political agenda in the near future, but will that be coming back? Will there be greater discussions of pulling out the ECHR? And I definitely see those as areas again where I'd like to see a referendum because I think there is a real need for engagement and understanding education on how we protect rights, what rights are important. And I think there'd be a real need for referendums there. So it's just a few possible ideas.
0: Yes, Dorian. you've got it. Mm-hmm.
3: So we're putting human rights into legislation right now, yeah. uh, just in case. Um, uh, uh, not just uh, human rights, but also um, uh, uh, social, economic, and yeah. Yeah. environmental rights. Yeah. I, I, and I, I think... Uh, what's really important is um, the amount of information people have, whatever the mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the really big problems that we've seen with referenda, with what, um, uh, with processes, uh, is that either the information they have is partial, um, uh, or it is biased, or it is. Um, certainly not seen as trusted information. Uh, and I think that idea around misinformation and disinformation is a hugely important element. Um, uh, and having roots uh, to ensure that whatever your process is, there's a clear level, A, of uh, independence from, from whoever it will benefit from the process, but also... <coughs> really clear, balanced evidence that will provide um, a a much more nuanced way uh, of coming up with answers. And it doesn't matter whether it's a referendum or it's a citizen uh, assembly or a citizen jury. That evidence and the demonstrable uh, balance within it is hugely important and I think that is the thing that can help us shift the dial uh, and can help us be Uh, um, uh, not just for the 100 people in that room, uh, but then the evidence going out, being talked about, uh, and perhaps then taken to a referendum, whatever the issue is. Um, uh, These are the mechanisms that will help us build trust and will help us think about Um, trust between levels of government. Uh, We we heard in the last panel around um, uh, the uh, trust with the Irish government, a hugely important element. Uh, And and, uh, that trust is something we should be having central to to how we're making our decisions. Um, Because any government only can govern uh, uh, if it is trusted in the end. Um, uh, That trust really, really matters. And we saw a lot of that during covid Um, uh, that that should have taught us some very real lessons uh, around um, being open and transparent, being able to provide information but also providing mechanisms for people to be involved in decision making and holding governments to account. Mm -hmm. We're using deliberative processes for accountability, thinking about the work we did uh, during COVID uh, and then um, uh, working with a, 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 a small sort of citizen jury um, to assess whether the decisions we took uh, around the sharing of data were, were um, uh, 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 sorry came up with the the, um, uh, the benefits and risks that had been identified before so that sort of ethical way of thinking, trying to be really clear about what you how you're making your decisions and who's making them uh, and what that will impact on.
0: Great, thank you. And um, Joanne, we have some limited examples of these kind of processes that we've been talking about, specifically deliberative processes in Westminster and Whitehall, but there is far more of this public engagement going on in local government. I was wondering why you think that might be? Is it just working well, better there? We're
1: led a lot by central government in terms of what we need. You know, there's some specific things you need to consult on around highways and things like that where consultations have to take place. locally i think you know we had we my one regress is we didn't have a referendum on whether there should be a city mayor or not you know it was it was forced upon the city without a referendum without people getting a vote on it and in the end we decided it was too expensive us to have a referendum we'd have a consultation and actually we were very fearful of influencing the consultation so we said nothing which was worse because people had you know three sheets of paper describing what they could make a decision on Um, and ultimately it was ignored in terms of what was um what was the conclusion less than four percent um engaged in that consultation we had to do it um, we we done it online and um, and we had to you know write out of people's homes so really expensive and we didn't engage on it and you know it's, it's one of my regrets because actually uh, whilst a referendum isn't binary it does put the question to bed and, and that that would have uh, that would have been helpful i think you know some of the things I tried to push so I had a stakeholder engagement manager who was part of my office and her job was to make sure that whatever we've done around consultation become a part of the plan and process within the organisation and that's where we often go wrong as well we'll ask for people's opinion we'll ask for their advice we'll ask for information from them and then we completely ignore them and people are fatigued by that and so they're fatigued at a local level around consultation because they can't always see the results of what we've done or we don't communicate it very well but putting it into your council plans and developing policies look at a neighbourhood level if we're sitting there banging on about the environment about how important it is but someone's got antisocial behaviour that's going on nightly outside their house our priority is not their priority and so understanding and having consultation does help shape what you can and should be doing in terms of services where I have got examples locally of co-design, um, you know, the results, uh, the take up, um, the involvement of people, the impact on growth from a regeneration perspective. One particular example that I'm looking at has way out anything that's gone on before because this time we understood that we'd asked the people um, to design uh, financial products uh, for the way in which they wanted to develop the, grow their social trading organisations. It's community-led. It gives us a mandate. They are grown as a result because it's based on what they want. But some of the other things I think we do, I think we do consultation based on our needs and not the needs of individuals. Uh, a recent uh, example: a friend of mine who's South African. Heartbreaking to hear that young black people are disengaged in politics and don't want to vote. You know that's heartbreaking when we look, you know, at the things that we've done. Over the years, to try and ensure that you know there was removal of apartheid but also that people had a vo- vote and a voice. And then some innovative things that I'm reading about recently. There's now a Tinder for politics in, <laughs> in <laughs> South Africa, where you get to choose your political party. I think some of the things uh, Dorian said about you know ensuring that it's impartial, it's independent, you can trust the information, and there's evidence there. If you're if you if the result affects you, you can't do that job. Somebody else has got to do it. But given people information the way that they want such as in a tinder like way might be the way forward for effective engagement
4: mm, thank you could i
0: add to that yeah absolutely, absolutely. i was at to next, so that's perfect <laughs>
4: excellent so um i mean you're quite right that there are more deliberative processes running at local authority level and so for example there's been more than 20 kind of well over 20 just on climate issues mm-hmm. um, alone and there are different requirements also on local authorities in different parts of of the UK too but but the reason that I think we're getting more of these at local authority level is that local authorities are often on the sharper end um, of some of the problems that can come around um, if you don't engage the public properly so if we're looking at climate for example we've seen um, some opposition arguably from vocal minorities often um, to some of the measures that are needed to reduce emissions um, in the news recently and so then alongside that we've run a training program for local authorities around climate and over 25%, or just under 25% rather, of local authorities in England signed up to be part of that programme. Because they're worried about it, because they're seeing the, the tangible problems kind of like right on their doorstep. And I think the same thing is about the benefits of public engagement. So I think there's a longer feedback loop for it for national government but on local government if you've engaged properly and you've seen greater buy-in locally and you've seen a reduction in opposition to what you're doing to your policies locally that's kind of much quicker feedback that the public engagement is worth doing and I think that's some of the reasons that you see more of these things
0: happening locally. Brilliant thank you. Um, I'm aware we have some questions coming online and we also have quite a full room here. So um, I think we can move on to questions from the audience. Uh, We've got a roving mic. Alex has it with him uh, circulating the room. I'll take questions in twos or threes depending. Wonderful, that's nice. Uh, Please wait for the microphone and say who you are and what organization you're from. Um, Just a reminder again online to pop your questions on um, there. Uh, Brilliant, yes, gentlemen at the front here.
1: Thanks so much, um, Steve Gosling, um, uh, Vice Chair, Unlock Democracy. Um, Alison, I was really uh, m- mindful of the opportunities you spoke about to use citizens' assemblies, along with referenda, etc. So, sort of uh, uh, hybrid kind of models. Um, but uh, if constitutional changes to get the legitimacy that um, through consent that it currently lacks, let's be honest. Um, Surely it doesn't need to be a binary referendum. There are many solutions on offer. So wouldn't it be better to set them against each other in a runoff like the French presidential kind of model? Okay.
0: Brilliant, another question. A gentleman
1: on that aisle. My question is for regarding devolution. And how do you balance public consultation with the piecemeal approach to devolution, which often leads to confusing and complex institutions. So how do you balance those two competing uh, issues?
0: Great, and can I take your name? Sorry, Uh,
1: Dominic Hart, postgraduate uh, at KCF.
0: Thank you. And then anyone else? There was a woman just next to you there. Hi, I'm Hattie Simpson. I'm an A-level student. Uh, from the perspective
2: of a student there's often a massive lack in political education sort of before we even get to the age that we can
0: vote and get involved politically what sort of role does political education after being imbued into the education system play in ensuring that you actually do have public engagement when you start setting up initiatives when people are actually able to get involved Great, thank you very much. Those are lovely, three distinct questions, lovely. Um, Alison, would you like to take the first one See, it as it's directed at you about yeah. a runoff of... <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> um,
2: I think um, the most reason I think we tend to see referendums as binaries is because we tend to see referendums as more the kind of element of the actual decision-making process from a number of options. I think the more range of options you've got the harder it is to then work out whether you've got enough backing for any one of the particular options. I think one of my problems I'd have with your presidential runoff scheme is are you then ending up with various individuals just choosing one side isn't necessarily what they fully want but they've got to choose one of them and that you end up not necessarily getting the backing of this element of having thought it through beforehand so that's why I tend to prefer a kind of binary choice the runoff should be coming off more in the element of trying to discuss the different options, the deliberations beforehand. And if you end up with a system where you can't necessarily, where you find that kind of element of choice, then I'm afraid I'd be back to, well, then why are you trying to make that particular decision? If there isn't a particular understanding of one direction or another direction or where we're going, then I guess we're back to maybe we need more deliberation. I know you could be here forever. And this is one of the main reasons that people don't like, understands a deliberative democracy, that you never get to make a decision, Mm. which is why I think you're thinking this more about longer term elements where we do need more discussion and deliberation and more forming of an aspect of consensus before you can put the choice. I wouldn't put a referendum or a deliberative democracy choice to do we need to go away and bring in particular COVID restrictions the next week before we have too many, you know, you don't need them for those emergency quick decisions. You've got to think carefully about when you're using deliberation.
0: Thank you. Um, I would say on the political education question, we had an event a uh, few months ago, uh, which was on this question. So you can go back and look at that as well, which would be quite interesting. But does anybody want to pick up on that on the role of political education and how important that is? I'm an educator, so I'm going to
2: say it's crucially important. Yeah. Um, but I, I do find, I mean, I'm, I'm, the, I'm a mum of a daughter who's been through the public education system, and she, she's uh, doing engineering, so she's not gone into kind of politics or law. And she says the only reason why she knows these things is because I bore her to death at home about them, (laughs) which is probably not how we should be educated, definitely not how my daughter wanted to be educated (laughs) in politics. But I think it's this element that there isn't, there should be, I think, more general education of how the system works. It's back again to understanding so you can get involved But also understanding so you can really have engagement discussion about the values we want to promote in our particular system and have ownership of those so I'm bound to say it's important so but I'll stop yeah I I would just add to that Uh,
3: education is important hugely important I'm certainly not underestimating it Uh, but actually we need democratic muscles and we need children to be able to exercise those long before they get to be voting, yeah. uh, we should have democracy in schools, um, uh, increasing the um, agency of children to be involved in co-designing their their processes.
4: Yeah, brilliant. So a similar thing. So so I also think it's important, but it's not an alternative to making the system work better because you can quickly become. You know, it's, it's helpful uh, to understand how the system works, but you can quickly become disillusioned if if institutions aren't. Listening, and you don't seem to have seem to have a voice. And I would agree very much with Doreen. There are, there are. It's, again, you can have the formal education, but there are more innovative ways of doing it in schools, and also more broadly from local authorities and other people who make decisions about young people, involving young people in them to give them that experience of what being really heard feels like and why it's important for them to engage.
3: One of the things we're rolling out uh, at the moment in, in some schools in Scotland, um, uh, particularly in Renfrew, um, is uh, participatory budgeting yeah. in mm-hmm. schools. Um, uh, and you know, so that gives uh, a little bit of power yeah. uh, to, to children who are involved in that.
1: I think the role of parents though is really interesting and I wonder that you know I was able to see uh, my mother affect change at a local level relating to that where we lived when I was young and I wonder the questions audience says about trust in politics mm-hmm. whilst I have seen politicians come and go I have seen people who are political affect change and I'm not sure the school environment can always teach you that and um, but I think you know there is absolutely a role for it to happen in education but I do pick up on Sarah's points if you if you you have that environment in school and then it doesn't lead to the change and you you you're ultimately ignored uh, I had the owner same experience with my son where the school in Liverpool was celebrated uh, celebrative found father's day and obviously lots of slave traders paid for lots of building in Liverpool and um, my son was largely ignored before uh, black lives matter and then they wanted him to sit on the committee I don't know that how it, that affects his understanding of whether he respects the school and their behavior but certainly it was uh, it was interesting for me to watch I wanted to I wanted to pick on, up on the other question Brilliant, that's yep. all right so um you know obviously as a leader of Liverpool I set on the devolved authority and um, I had a, a lead in um, education and training uh, education and skills but also equality diversity and inclusion what I did see is lots of groups within the combined authority being engaged with and being given information and they were leading to a structure of informing decision-making and so I restructured uh, in the in the lead that I had four panels around the policy diversity inclusion uh, race panel gender panel and so on in order to inform decision-making they are your community representatives who learn at that combined authority about the issues and decisions that the combined authority makes and they are the people that go out into the community who then talk talk about that because of the role that they have within their communities on their professional experience. So over the long term and engaging, you know, all leads to informing, educating. uh, That is a mechanism that I, I, it was easy for, it was an easy fix for me. You can just have engagement for the sake of it or you can have it to affect decisions.
4: Thank you. And Sarah, did you want to come in? Yeah, on the question on devolution. So I wasn't 100% sure if you were talking about the piecemeal way in which devolution devolution deals are made or the piecemeal institution, the kind of different levels of responsibility and complex institutions that can result from a devolution deal. But on the former, um, I think that's where something like a citizens' assembly or a similar process where you can reconvene it at different points can be really valuable. So you can have it initially to help inform what's being, negoc- what's being asked for in the devolution deal. You can check back with, with them about how it's going at various points, and I think that's a way to kind of, you've got time to explain the complexity and time to get people into the subject matter and get their feed in at various points. Uh, if you're talking about the complexity that exists after devolution deals, then I think that's a classic example about where institutions need to work together
0: more. Thank you. Um, I've got one online that there's but a, a thing that I think would be interesting to ask um, about the role of, sort of dark money and external influences on politics now and how it might be, uh, be made more vulnerable and whether deliberative democracy-like processes are also um, open to that. But there's a wider question there about um, politicians and their scepticism about these sort of, I guess, unknown processes. And Sarah, I was wondering, given you do a lot of work talking to these people to try and convince or help them understand um, about how, how to use these processes. What, what is it that politicians are sceptical about? Is that something that comes up?
4: Um, yeah, it does come up. Um, so I think that there's what people say that they're sceptical of, and there's what I think sits underneath it. So I think what sits underneath a lot of it is that when you, when you want to become a politician, you put a lot of effort into being elected, particularly if you're trying to be elected as an MP, and you've got certain expectations about what that's going to involve once you are an MP and the power that you're going to have to make decisions and I think when people you people you then ask an elected politician to do public engagement to help inform what they're doing they see it maybe as a loss of power perceive it as a loss of power but I think that's an incorrect in fact, I know that's been incorrect uh, perception because actually you can get so much more done on the agenda that you care about when you work with people than when you make a decision and try and implement it on people so I think that's an where a lot of the nervousness comes from, but I think it's a misplaced concern. Um, One of the other things we hear a lot about is um, politicians and others being worried that issues are too complex for the public. Um, So that is definitely not true. So we run the ScienceWise programme for UKRI. That has a whole stream looking at robotics, uh, artificial intelligence and data, which is about as complex as you can get. And then there uh, have been lots of processes around things like assisted dying, which are morally complex. No one's ever had a problem engaging with any um, of those issues um, and then the other concern we can get which was alluded to earlier um, is that these processes take time um, now they, they do take longer but they take a lot less time and if you have to you know uh, tear something up tear a policy up because it doesn't work and then have to do it again so the idea is you take a little bit longer you do it right the first time and it's quicker overall
0: thank you Um, We go back to the audience. A few hands again here. There's a gentleman here at the front.
1: Something I always wanted to... My name's Barney Jackson. I'm an artist. Something I always wanted to know about um, uh, local democracy is what part the uh, constitutions play, because each council has a constitution. I've looked through quite a few of them. They have an article one. They have a, um, a section about... Public participation, and that I wonder that that's a way in to 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 um, get your local local um, councillors to include the public and meaningful participatory democracy, and really get you know really get um, that sort of deliberative element into local decision making.
0: Great. Oh, I'll just take a couple couple. more
4: and then, but it's good that you're keen. Anyone else? There's a woman here at the front. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mahek. I'm an undergraduate law student. Um, My question has to do with a pattern that I've noticed throughout my constitutional law studies, which is in the past few years, a steady decline in accountability, and that affects public trust in the government. Um, We have ministerial responsibility, which often exists in theory, but not in practice. And my question, and I was curious to see how deliberative democracy processes can ensure accountability in the government, because I know that was brought up in the panel, um, and how that can work in practice and whether that can reinstate public
0: faith in the government that has been lost due to the lack of political accountability. Sorry, that's a long one. No, that's great, thank you. And again, sorry, uh, come on here, just.
3: Andrew Westall, FDSD. Um it, I'm taking a kind of step into the future. Say we got a lot more deliberative practices going on, a lot more engagement. There is a challenge that you put out that you know not everybody can engage all the time, There's lots of reasons why they don't, why they can't. Are we talking really here, and this is when it gets down to constitutional level, about a slight alteration in the social contract in a way? Mm -hmm. Because there are both rights to engage, but also the responsibility to engage. But you can't have that without some support. And I'm just throwing something mad out, but, you know, the idea of some kind of citizen service, I mean, that's a Mm -hmm. blunt one, but something that supports that ability for people to be part of what will be increasingly complex decision-making.
0: Thank you very much. Yeah, and there was a one you wanted to pick up on or
1: you can... Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I can also pick up on that one as well. Right. But in terms of the constitution, we re- rewrote ours in Liverpool and the threshold was um, a constitution where residents want to go and look into the documents. I'm not sure people did want to look into our constitutional documents. What they do want to know is if they want to make a complaint that the process is open and transparent. Mm-hmm. They know how to do it. It was so complex and all over the place, basically. Um, in terms of doing that, you know, we managed to improve a system. People could complain; they knew, knew where to go to, and they responded to effectively. But in terms of, um, you know, you were asking, does it? You know, what's in the local constitution around participation? Does that lead to greater um, community engagement? I think it''s a similar thing i 've never seen a bad policy written i've seen loads of policies that people don 't implement or pay no attention to, so i don 't think it you know it will help in the document if people pay attention to it and lead on it. It won't help if they don't and I think most people uh, or most you know councils and organizations there's a cultural thing of whether they value you know participation so beyond the documents i suppose it's up to them i think what people do want though is if they they're not happy about something they want it addressed effectively and i think the constitution does that and i think they're happy with that um, in terms of the social contracts i think it's a really interesting one um, i think we were talking earlier um, in terms of complex information i also have had that experience there's you know i worked in the crown prosecution service i was explaining complex legal information putting into layman's terms and you know helping people understand never had a problem with complexity but i have had loads of problem where people just aren't interested so i'm really passionate about the circular economy and i don't understand why not everybody else is not really passionate about the circular economy so i think a social contract is a good idea around a responsibility to be engaged and to engage in things that affect you and it's interesting isn't it some governments like australia and you know have mandatory vote and i really uh, that was really a new concept to me. I, I, you know, I've read that it's 19 countries that have that, but the, I find it mind-blowing. And, and you know, what happens to people if they don't vote? Do they end up in jail? Do they end up fined? Mm-hmm. But actually, okay. you know, I think it really upsets me personally when people are really lethargic about whether they should vote or not. So I think the the, the concept of a, um, a social contract is a good one. And the other thing um, for local government that I think re- works really well, even though it's a real pain, is freedom of information requests. You know, in order to have that transparency about did you pay attention to your procedures around participation when you made that decision, they're questions that can be asked um, usually after the event, but still, it's a mechanism in there.
0: Right. thank you. Yeah, can I?
4: I'll be, I'll be quick. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so on the idea of uh, a sort of citizen service, um, yes, uh, I, I think it's a good idea. It's not that dissimilar to how, how processes are run at the moment. So um, if, if we're running a process, we would offer people um, the equivalent of a living wage as a gift of thanks mm-hmm. for giving up um, yeah. their time. Um, and I think the whole... The whole idea of it. It's a bit like jury service, isn't it? We have jury service already. People are supported to do it. There are some problems with that system I'm aware of. But I think it's a similar thing. People should be recognised for the time that they give um, to inform their decisions. So, I, yeah, yes, I agree with you. Um, on the question Somebody here...
3: needs to help DWP understand.
4: <laughs> yes, they do. So, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave that there, shall yeah. we? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, on the question here, so we're working at the moment, it's not quite what you asked, but um, involves working at the moment and, and have published some proposals around how citizens juries can help uh, around setting and the implementation of rules for MPs, mm-hmm. um, which I think could be a really valuable way that might help to build trust. Um, I should also say, having we've talked about devolution quite a lot, that we're also working on and about to publish some proposals around public engagement uh, in, and involvement in devolution. So keep a look out for those. There we
3: go.
0: Thank you. Doreen, did you want to pick that if up?
3: I just come back a little bit, on, on, uh, and I said earlier that if people are involved in these things, we should value it. Uh, we should value it in the same way as any other kind of evidence. Yeah. Uh, and goodness, we give enough money to yeah. consultations, um, <laughs> uh, to, to consultants. Um, I, I think um, there are difficulties, though, uh, and, and the, um, uh, uh, the rules around benefits uh, mean if you are... Uh, as we are, very particularly careful um, to be as inclusive as we can. You have to be really uh, thoughtful about what that looks like and how you, how you do it. Uh, I think it's, uh, increasingly it will be important because there is no point uh, in creating a new f- um, bit of our democratic infrastructure uh, and replicating the rubbish uh, that we have in our current um, so, so we need to be really thoughtful uh, about what it, how we put that pastoral care uh, in place so that um, people can Get involved. If you have, uh, you know, are running four jobs uh, and have uh, three kids to, to look after, you've got to be able to have somebody looking after those children. Um, uh, you've got to have some support to be able to do that. Uh, we won't be able to do it all the time, every time, uh, but but we are looking at providing that guidance for um, public servants so that so that there is a um, much more confidence uh, around how we do that.
0: Yeah, Alison, did you want to pick up on that um, uh, accountability yeah. point
2: as well? Um, sure, thank you. Um, so I think it's mostly done indirectly. So as you were saying, the element of involving, as um, Sarah was saying, involving people in um, consulting about what those values should be, having some kind of discussion and then ownership of these values that, that, that then filters into political decisions. If that then starts filtering into what the electorate is concerned about, the hope is that will then start filtering into how ministers, think about how they're behaving and acting and how MPs think about how they're behaving and acting when they're trying to hold ministers to account. So I don't think deliberation is necessarily a kind of direct way in which you're trying to enhance accountability. It has that more indirect role of kind of building up that culture.
0: Brilliant, thank you. And exactly on time, so I'll do this last bit quickly. Uh, That is all we've got time for. Uh, So thanks very much for watching online for everyone who's in the room. I appreciate you staying with us for the day. Um, Thank you to Sarah, Joanne, Doreen and Alison for your wonderful uh, being on the panel. Um, We're now gonna break for coffee, uh, tea, everything's available we'll be restarting at 4:15 for an in conversation right here with the right honourable the baroness hale of richmond to finish off the day the thank you very much okay. <laughs>